Uh, good morning. My name is Chris. I have the privilege of being the student uh, pastor here at Christ Community on Olathe campus. Anybody still have a tournament bracket that is 100% perfect and still intact? So have a chance at winning that billion dollars? Maybe if you do, you don't want to raise your hand because you're going to jinx it, right? Um, speaking of being perfect, though, I want to start this morning with... This idea that I think there's two big cultural lies uh, that are all being sold to us or that we're being encouraged to believe. Uh, The first is that you and me and everybody that we interact with, we're just fine the way that we are. We're perfect the way we are. My actions, the way that I think that they are, if if I think my action is the best thing for me, then who are you to tell me that my actions are wrong? even if my actions, good for me, might be detrimental or hurtful to you. Who are you to tell me that that's not right for me? And the same thing works for you. My truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth, and let's all just find a way to get along, right? I think that's the first big lie. The second is that none of us are fine at all, but we're really, really close And all we need is that one more thing to make us perfect or that one more thing to make us feel happy. And this is an idea that people have been trying to convince us for a a long time. Like here's this ad from the 50s for Lucky Strike. Be happy. Go lucky. Smoke their cigarettes and you'll be happy. And even a couple of years ago, Coke had an ad. Now soda is bottled happiness, apparently. Open a bottle and you'll be happy. You know, and so whether it's a drink, kids, whether it's a toy or that new video game, or, you know, for, for all of us, whether it's that new outfit, those clothes, that new phone with the bigger screen that we all have to have, or the bigger TV, or the new car with, all, with the, the, the vacuum cleaner in the trunk that will make your life perfect, or the new house and the right zip code, or for some people, maybe even a new spouse. We're all just one thing away from happiness. We're all one thing away from feeling validated and worthy in the eyes of each other, of other people. We're all one thing away from feeling perfect, like our life is always the way we dreamed it could be. And sometimes we actually get one of those things And we actually do feel different, don't we? We do feel happy. We do feel content. For a few moments. And then that dissipates. Then we feel empty again. Or we feel like we need that next thing. And then the cycle continues. And they need us. They need for us for the cycle to continue. They need for us to want that next thing. So they can keep making money. But we also need the cycle to continue, don't we? We need that next thing to give us hope that things might be better, that they might be right the next time. Honestly, we need them to keep making money. Our 401ks are tied up in the profitability of those companies so that we can hope that when we get to retire, then my life will be perfect because I'll be making enough money and then I can golf all day or live in Florida or wherever, where there's never snow in March on spring break, right? We're all that one thing away, and it's all different for each of us. 
But that's another lie and myth, I think, that we're constantly being sold. And I don't think any of us actually believes either one of those myths or lies in its entirety. But I do think when it suits us, we all meld those two together and come up with some convoluted idea that we, whether we would want to admit it or not, we do practice and we do believe in. You know, I think for me, when, when I got to lose my hair in my 30s, I had to quickly confront the idea that I was no longer perfect or was ever going to be. And I'd like to think I'm over that one, but I'll be honest, every day I still struggle with the fact that I still don't have, I don't have any hair But for me, honestly, a lot of times, clothes and toy technology and cars may not be the thing for me, but I constantly succumb to that second myth or temptation, that second lie. If I just have one more thing, I'll be happy or my life will be better. And it's in in one specific area, and I'll bet you any of the kids in the student ministry know what area of my life that is. I love bikes. I'm a cyclist. I'm a bit of a nut when it comes to that. And I have this subscription to Bicycling Magazine, and whenever this comes in the mail, it's simultaneously the best. It's, it's a great day, and it's the worst day. Because suddenly the bike I have isn't quite good enough. And I have a, I have a, I'm blessed. I have a really nice bike. But then the buyer's guide comes. 132 reviews of the best new bikes. Even if you're not looking to buy a new bike, they get you hooked because it says, win any bike in this issue. So now I have to look. Even if in brackets it says, any bike under $5,000. I know most of you are like, are you kidding me? But there's a bike worth $16,000 in this magazine. Yeah. That's my temptation. If I had that new part or that new jersey or a slightly lighter bike, for a few moments I believe my life might be better. My life might easier. I might enjoy it more. We all face that in our own ways with our own issues. In Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 18, our passage for this morning is a reminder, it's a strong reminder that the promise of both of those lies will always come up short. That we can try and try and try to make ourselves better. We can try to feel good and feel better about ourselves and our actions, but in the end they will always come up short. This passage tells us that Jesus is the solution. He's the one solution. He's the final solution. Our sin has been dealt with, and the cost of our sin has been covered. He removes what alienates us from God and from ourselves once and for all. And as a result, we've been made whole, and He's shown us how to live a life of wholeness. We need to stop falling into these two lies and trying to make our life better that way. Now, if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you know that we're in a bit of a thick part of Romans, a thick part of this sermon, where the author of the book of Hebrews has taken the sermon, and he's written it down, and he's been building over the last few weeks. And a couple chapters ago, he started comparing Jesus to Melchizedek, saying Jesus was a new and better high priest. And then he moved a step further and said he's not only a new and better high priest, he came with a new and better covenant. And the new and better covenant is new and better in part because Jesus' blood can do what the sacrifices never could, which is why it makes it a good covenant. Now he builds it to a crescendo and takes it even one step further and tells us why it's even, why it's better, why it's good. 
He says it's better because it's once and for all. The payment for our sins is finished. It's done. In verse 12, we heard read that, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The single gift of his sacrifice paid for and covered my sins once and for all. I went to a small private Christian college in, in the 90s. Tuition was expensive even then, and I paid for it on my own. My parents weren't really in a position to help. And so, you know, a combination of student loans, grants from the, from the Canadian government, because I grew up there, and from grants from the school, and a part-time job working in the college dining hall, working 20 hours a week, which was good for my bank account and not for my waistline at all. But somehow, a mix of all of those things, I, was, I managed to pay for my college education. I still graduated with a pretty decent chunk of student loans. You know, I wouldn't say it was a huge chunk by today's standards for some uh, four-year private university educations. But for me, being 21, just graduating and just getting married, it was a huge amount of money. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. Part of the solution was, hey, let's go to grad school because then I don't have to pay for it for a couple more years. (laughs) So I went to seminary, you know, ignore reality for a couple more years. You know, and while I was dating my, my wife, my father-in-law, who worked really, really hard to put four daughters through school, through college, with no debt at all, and he began to get the idea that we were a little bit more serious than he thought, and that his daughter might want to marry a guy who had college loans, he wasn't exactly excited. And he found some ways to communicate that maybe he wasn't so excited. He's a great guy, though. I love him dearly. He let us get married anyways. And I went to seminary, and I remember after I graduated from seminary, they came out to visit us in Denver. And, you know, for my graduation, he gave me a card. And I was like, okay, you know, a card, you know, it's thoughtful. I don't know what I was thinking, but, you know, I'll admit, there's a pompous part of me that was like, I just got my master's card? Really? I didn't know what I was expecting. So in a private moment, though, I opened up the card. And in the card, he said that he and his wife, their gift to me for graduating from seminary was to pay off my college student loans. You know, they weren't wealthy either. Um, my father-in-law had, had found a way to retire um, before I had started seminary, before Heather and I had gotten married. So his way of paying for my college student loans was he went back to work for two years. And all the money from that went to pay my student loans. So it was a huge sacrifice that he made to pay off my debt. To relieve us from the financial burden that we'd be starting our real life. You know, when you're seminary, no jobs. It was real life, but we were going to face some financial realities when I got out of school. He wanted us to start fresh with no burden, with no financial burden hanging over us. But it wouldn't be for years later until I realized the freedom that also came from being freed from that debt. It wasn't just the debt that he paid. He gave us the freedom to think about how we were going to pay and start our lives in other ways. 
We could think about how we were going to pay for a car, how we might pay for a house. We had the freedom when we found out that we were dealing with infertility for a whole bunch of years. We had the freedom to think about how to build our family in less conventional ways that were also really expensive. We may not have been able to think about any of those things without him paying off the debt of my student loans and the freedom that came with that. Now, I'm not saying it's entirely the same thing as what Jesus has done for us, but Jesus has paid for our sins once and for all, not just to relieve us of our sins and the guilt and the shame, but to give us freedom, to give us a life of freedom, to live the way we were designed to live. He paid for our sins because I can't, because you can't. He paid for my sins. He paid for your sins because I can't pay for what I can't pay for. First big idea this morning. Second, because I can't pay what he paid for. And third, I can't pay for what he does not remember. Those are the three things we're going to be talking about this morning. First, I can't pay for what I can't pay for. I'll be the first to admit before somebody else points it out that I'm selfish and as a result I'm sinful. You know, I'm constantly making choices and decisions which put myself first over and above the health and the, benefit and the welfare of others, and the result is I hurt them and alienate myself from them and from God, and that's, that's what sin is. I'm selfish. My life is full of sin, and so is yours. And we try and pay off sin with good deeds, but intuitively, I think we know when we're honest with ourselves, we know we can't pay off our deeds with or with, pay off our sin with good deeds. You know, we do something wrong and we think, okay, if I do this good action, that'll, that'll balance it out. Or if it's really bad, we're like, oh, I'll do three good deeds and that'll balance it out. But we know it doesn't work that way in the life of Christ. Because those are the ways that we should be living anyways. The good deeds don't pay for or cancel out sin. Those are the ways that we should be living if we are followers of Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 1, the passage started out with the writer saying, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The sacrifices could never make perfect those who draw near. Our sacrifices and our good deeds could never cover up the sin. Those are the ways that we should be living anyways. You know, guys, I'm going to pick on us a second. Husbands or boyfriends, you get in an argument, which I know never happens, but this is a hypothetical, right? You get in in an argument with your wife, and you do something that's hurt her feelings, and so you bring home flowers, right? If you only ever bring home flowers when you've done something wrong... Does it help cover up or make better what went wrong? Yeah, sure. Does it help smooth over hurt feelings? Yeah, it might. But if we truly love our wives and we know our wives like flowers, shouldn't we be bringing home flowers as just a normal statement of our love and not as just penance for a hurtful act? I see some wives smiling and couple elbows. And yes, this is medicine I'm, I'm giving to myself as well. I'm not saying that I'm perfect in this regards. But our actions sh- cannot and should not be just a covering up of, of wrongdoing and sin and ill deeds. 
and hurt that we've caused. They have to be expressions of the love that we have. Our, goods, our good deeds can't cover up our sin and our alienation from God. And that sin and our alienation is so great that a few good deeds would only be adding more insult to injury in, in any ways. I can't pay for what I can't pay for. And even if I could pay for my sins, aren't one of two things going to happen anyways? Let's say I get on a roll and I do a whole string of good deeds for a whole day and as far as I can tell, there's no sin and I'm like, oh, I'm canceling out my sin then. What starts to happen? I get prideful, don't I? I start to think it's actually all me. I start to think, God needs me. He sure is glad I'm on his team. And then I'm started over at square one again. I've become selfish. Or there's the alternative, which can be just as debilitating. You try and pay off your sin with, with good behavior, and you fail. And in your failure, you feel more guilt and shame. And trying to escape that guilt and shame with good deeds, you even feel more guilt and shame. C.S. Lewis wrote, No person knows how bad he is until they have tried very hard to be good. Almost as if the harder we try to be good, the more we realize just how, how far we have to go, just how bad we are. You know, and the bottom line is God doesn't want me to try harder. He doesn't want me to come before Him with good deeds as payments. He doesn't want my rituals. He wants my heart. Rituals cannot place me in a right relationship with Him or cleanse my conscience of guilt. My good deeds won't be enough because God wants my heart. Paying with good deeds is paying with the wrong currency. I can't pay for what I can't pay for. Second, I can't pay for what He has paid for. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 9, he writes, Behold, I, will, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. By that will Jesus was sent and he died and through his death. We have been sanctified through the offering of his body and his blood once and for all. Our method of paying for sin can't and doesn't. But through the sinless life of Jesus and his innocent death, our sin has been paid for. We are sanctified and made holy and we are perfect and whole in the eyes of God. We can't pay for what we can't pay for. We can't pay for what's already been paid for. Have you ever tried to go to a re- have you ever gone to a restaurant with a friend who who's decided they're paying for your dinner, no matter what. It's kind of cool. Unless you're the kind of person who won't let somebody else pay for the dinner. And you say, no, 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 I mean, you fight over credit cards and back and forth, back and forth, and finally your friend ends up giving his credit card or, or, or money for it. The waiter takes it, but you still keep fighting to pay for it. It starts to get a little awkward, doesn't it? Have you ever decided to do that? Even though your meal is paid for, you're going to insist on paying for your meal anyways? No, that'd be just dumb, wouldn't it? Your meal is paid for. Why would you leave payment on the table or with the waiter for something that's already paid for? And I'm not talking about a tip. It's insulting. 
makes the waiter feel awkward, makes your friend feel really awkward. It negates the fact that your meal has been paid for, makes your payment wasteful as well. It ignores the original payment. Us trying to pay for our sin when it's paid for through actions and good deeds ignores the payment that's already been made. God doesn't need and doesn't want you to pay for your sin because you can't and you didn't. Because it's already paid for. Instead, He wants our hearts. Instead of payment, He desires our obedience. He desires me to long to draw close to Him, to enter into His presence with thankfulness and joy because our debt has been paid for. Third, I can't pay for what is finished and forgotten. Hebrews 10 verse 16, um, the author quotes Jeremiah and he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my hearts, my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. God wants my heart. He wants my obedience and that's possible because he has written his laws on my heart. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 33, and then he does a curious thing. He also quotes an additional verse from Jeremiah 31. He quotes verse 34 as well, which says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Well, if we're honest, God not remembering our sins, the idea of that can be a little confusing, can it? So the God who knows everything, who knows everything that has happened, that is happening right now and knows everything that will happen in the future somehow doesn't remember my sins. How does that happen? I don't know if you're like me, but I've got a really bad memory with a lot of things. Like I can go to the grocery store on the way home from work or something to pick up three things or nine o'clock at night when suddenly we decide we need a snack or something and so I go to the grocery store with three things on the list, say bananas, milk, and Ben and Jerry's, you know, and not necessarily to make milkshakes, but just because you need milk in the morning, and bananas are always good, and who doesn't like Ben and Jerry's, right? <laughs> but if that's my list, I can get to the grocery store. If I don't call my wife quite a, quite a few times, I'll forget one of those three items. So I, a lot of times I'll call, and not just to see what flavor of ice cream she wants, but to double check and see if I'm forgetting something. And if I'm honest, it's probably because I'm distracted in the grocery store because there's always like samples of pineapple in the produce section, right? So I have to have some of that. Then I go down the chips and soda aisle because even though I know it's not good for me, I want some. So a lot of times I'm at risk of forgetting. I forget simple stuff like that. And yet when it comes to trying to forget the things that I've done wrong, can't shake that stuff loose. I, I don't know if, you, if you're like me, you have this ability to catalog all the things you've done wrong and how you've hurt other people. And even if you forget the specific instances, you don't forget the guilt and the shame that comes with those things. And so if I can't forget those things, how is God going to forget them? You know, whether it's how we failed our coworkers or 
parents how you may feel like you failed your kids if you had just parented better and that way they would have turned out better or they would have the life that you always wanted them to have that you didn't have or or, or kids maybe it's things that you've done wrong to hurt your parents and and you hope that your parents forget because you can't forget and you feel full of guilt and shame if we can't forget forget our own sins and our own failings how is god ever going to forget them if I can't let go of my guilt and shame, how is he going to? But it doesn't say that God will forget our sins. It says that he is not going to remember them. And there's a difference. Because all throughout Scripture, it says that God, when it says that God remembers something, he, it says that he's remembering promises he's made to his people or he's remembering their wrongdoings. And he's going to act on one of them. So when it says God remembers something, he will remember to bless his people or he will remember to punish them for something they've done wrong. By remembering, God will promise to act on what he remembers. So when it says God remembers our sin no more, what we're being told is that our sins have been paid because they've been paid for already by Jesus God is no longer keeping a record of them and doesn't feel the need to act on our sin anymore. He's not forgetting them. He just no longer feels the need to act on them, to demand payment for them because they've been paid for already. We can't pay for what God chooses not to remember or chooses not to act on. And so there's no longer a reminder of my sin Because if I have faith and I put my trust in Him, if I put my trust in Jesus and His life and His death, God sees me as forgiven. He sees me as whole. He sees me as made made perfect again. And as long as we remember our sins and try and hold on to them, as as long as we try and pay for them, that's that's more about holding on to something that we feel like we can control. Whereas accepting forgiveness that's freely offered to us, choosing to live in His grace, that's, that's more about giving up control, letting Him control. So we must once and for all accept His once and for all payment of our sin and live like we are forgiven. What does the forgiven life look like, though? The Bible is full of examples of what the forgiven life looks like. But for me, one of the most comprehensive examples of what the forgiven life looks like is found in Micah chapter 6. And we'll have it on the screen, but if you'd like to read along and turn in your Bible, turn to Micah chapter 6, starting at verses 6 and reading through verse 8. Micah writes, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? The first two verses of this, of this passage from Micah are essentially asking the question that Hebrews 10 answers. 
Does the Lord require rituals and sacrifice and payment and good works for our sin? Does he require sacrifices? Does he require thousands of rivers of oil? Does he require our firstborn to pay for our sins? No. Because the blood of a firstborn has already been shed for our sins. We are to walk humbly with God, to love kindness, and to walk justly. And that's the life of the forgiven. Let's look at these three. I'm going to invert them from the passage and look at them backwards. But first, this passage in Micah says, we're to walk humbly with our God. To do this means we assume a right attitude, an attitude that reflects God's lordship and His forgiveness. We understand that we're forgiven, and we don't have to earn our forgiveness, and so we live a life of thankfulness. So when my father-in-law told me that he wanted me to pay for my student lo- or that he wanted to pay for my student loans, knowing the, the debt that I had and the lack of financial security I had just with the debt and then trying to start out and get my first job, but also being a guy who has always kind of struggled with how I'm going to provide for and take care of my family. I think that's a feeling a lot of guys can resonate with. But it's always been a struggle with mine. I've always tried to control that. A lot of times, not that well. But given that my father-in-law wanted to pay off my student loan debt, I could have in pride said, no, I got this. I'm in control. You may not believe it, but I can take care of this. I could have looked in his face and with pride said, no thank you, and declined his offer. But that would have been more about maintaining control than being thankful for the blessing that was coming to me. And every day you and I are faced with opportunities to act out of pride or to act humbly. The way of God, the way of the forgiven is to walk humbly, to choose an attitude that reflects God and not ourselves. What this also means practically is we extend forgiveness to other people who have hurt us and wronged us. That we won't be the kind of people that keep a catalog or keep a record of every way that every other person has hurt us. And we don't forgive them until they give us what, what we think is equal cost for how they've hurt us. We forgive as we've been forgiven. In the words of John the Baptist in John 3.30, a life of thankfulness and a life of humility comes down to making myself less so that he will become more. After, walk, after walking humbly, we, we second, we love kindness. And this involves having the right affections, loving the things that God loves. We actively seek to know the things that He loves, and when we discover what He loves, we immerse ourselves in them. We want to love the same things. And the way that we discover the things that He loves is by loving Him, by knowing Him, by experiencing Him, and becoming like Him bit by bit, every day, stumbling forward on our knees towards Him, becoming more like Him. And Scripture is full of stories of what God loves. The whole story, the whole book of the Bible, the whole life of Jesus is a story of what God loves. He loves me, and He loves you, and He loves everyone, including those who come to Him in faith, asking for forgiveness, whether rich 
or poor, male or female, slave or free. Everyone. He loves kindness. He loves joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He loves stewardship and he loves generosity. And he loves it when we do all those things in a way that point to him. And we can all do those things because we like them and because we, we think those things are good things, right? Just because we should, those are good things to do. And we all know people who do those things well apart from a life from God, don't we? Heather and I have had some fantastic friends who weren't believers who live by the golden rule. And, and frankly, at times in our life, they lived out some of those ideas almost better and more consistently than we did. But they didn't do it to bring glory and honor to God. We must love those things as God does in a way that points to Him, not points to us. For many of us here today, we're doing okay in that department. But if we're really going to love the things that God loves, this, this means that we take those things that He loves that we might be doing now and increasing how much we love them and how much we act on them in a radical new way. In a way that might be costly, in a way that might be scary. I want to venture to say that I think most of us are a long way from, impl- for, from applying some of these things in, in a way in our life that others might look and say, whoa, that's radical. I think we have so much room to go. So far that we can go in terms of practicing and living out the kindness that God loves, that He wants us to love. We must love these things that God loves point to Him instead of pointing to ourselves. The third thing that says in Micah that we must do um, what God requires of us is to do justice. Now, this is a really interesting one in, in light of the justice that, we, that has been done to pay for our sins, right? Justice has been done. An innocent man who was God Himself died for our sins willingly paid the price for our sins. Doing justice means we align our actions with the actions of God. And in Luke chapter 8, I think in the healing of a woman who was bleeding for 12 years alongside the healing of Jairus' daughter, we can see a beautiful picture of, of kingdom justice at work. Jesus is going down a road and he's got a whole group of people following along. And Jairus, who's a ruler of a synagogue, a powerful person in the community at that time, comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, my daughter's dying. You've got to come and heal her. Jesus said, okay, let's go. The crowd surges forward. They all follow because they want to see something miraculous happen that day, don't they? There's pushing and shoving. It's a big crowd. In the middle of the crowd, there's a woman who for the last 12 years has suffered from chronic bleeding. She's paid every penny that she has to doctors who have failed her couldn't bring her healing. Being in that crowd, she's breaking almost every cleanliness law that the Israelites were told that they had to observe. So she's in very poor standing in terms of the law by even being there. But she's, she's there thinking, if I just touch Jesus' garment, his cloak, if I just touch the hem of his cloak, I'll be healed. She touches his cloak and she is healed. But instantly, Jesus senses something happen. And he stops in the crowd. You, have you ever been walking behind somebody and they suddenly stop and you bump into him. Kind of imagine that Jesus stops. Everyone's like a big pile up. Everyone's like, what's going on? And he's like, who touched me? 
disciples are like, really, bro? <laughs> Seriously? Look, there's a big crowd. Come on, Jairus' daughter. Let's, let's move on. This is your chance, Jesus, to do something, to make your name known. You're going to heal Jairus' daughter, and everyone's going to know about it. Jesus says, no, who touched me? And finally, I have to imagine after some awkward silence, this, this terrified woman comes before Jesus and said, I did. And Jesus sits in the dirt and listens to her story. I have to imagine it took more than a few minutes. Twelve years of suffering from chronic bleeding, being taken advantage of by doctors who couldn't help her. The suffering and the alienation that she experienced. Jesus didn't just heal her physically. Listening to her story healed her spiritually, emotionally, and mentally as well. And as the story is finishing up, Jairus' servants come and say, Jairus, don't bother, she's dead. And Jesus says, no, don't fear. Only believe. She's not dead, she's just asleep. Let's go. So the crowd moves, but as, as the crowd is going to Jairus' house, Jesus does something that we don't really understand until afterwards. He sends the crowd away, he dismisses them. And maybe it's because they're like, okay, Jairus' daughter is only asleep. No big, you know, he's just going to wake her up. No miracle to see here. He dismisses the crowd, and when they get to Jairus' house, he only takes his three, three of his closest disciples in the room with him, with Jairus and his wife. And the sleeping daughter is, of course, not sleeping. She's dead. And Jesus brings her to life. Jesus had a chance to do something spectacular and powerful and relevant by publicly raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, by bringing power and influence to himself by healing the daughter of an important person in the Jewish community. But instead, what people will remember that day is that Jesus healed a nameless, penniless woman who culturally and socially had nothing to offer Jesus in terms of power and influence. People would say, yeah, he healed some nameless person. Big deal. healed Jairus' daughter too, though, didn't he? He helped the powerful when they needed help, but he also helped the powerless. Acting for the very least of God's children who have nothing to offer him in return, who will not increase our power and influence over others, restoring them to their rightful place in society, while also seeking the common good of everyone in our community is acting justly and is aligning our actions with the actions of God. And when we do all three of these things, when we do justice and we love kindness and we walk humbly, when we align our actions, our affections, and our attitude with God, with the things that He loves, then we can live what we hear at Christ's communion, what we call the tome life. We can begin to life, live a life that is blameless, pure, and whole. A life free from guilt and shame. A life of thanks and forgiveness. This is the life that God is calling us to because Jesus paid for our sins once and for all and has freed us from guilt and shame.